Well, good morning. I'd invite you to take a Bible. If you have one, turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. And if you don't have one, there's one in the rack in front of you. You can use that one as well. 1 Kings chapter 11, and to the outline in your Bible or in your bulletin titled um, Holy Devoted. You know, uh, we're approaching Memorial Day, and Memorial Day is the traditional uh, beginning of summer, and it's beginning to look a lot like summer here um, because it's always gooey and gloomy and cloudy, uh, at least for the first part of summer here. But, you know, Memorial Day is so much more than that. It's a time when we celebrate those who have sacrificed for our freedom. And we all know great war heroes like, you know, George Washington and Paul Revere and Sergeant York and Audie Murphy, but there are a lot of great war heroes you may have not heard of, and I'd like to just give you some examples today. Um, This is Alan McLean. He was an officer in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, served under General George Washington. And what makes him special is uh, he uh, used almost all of his fortune to uh, pay and supply um, the equipment for the troops uh, that fought the Revolutionary War. He also warned George Washington about Benedict Arnold way before anybody suspected him. Um, another war hero you might not have heard of was Anne Bailey, or Mad Anne, as her friends called her. Um, that would be a great nickname, wouldn't it? Mad, <laughs> and then whatever your name is, that'd be a little rough. But uh, anyway, uh, she, um, she's known for her heroic act during the Northwest Indian War in 1791, where she made a legendary 100-mile ride to Fort Savannah at Lewisburg in order to uh, get ammunition for the troops back at Fort Lee, and she is credited with saving Fort Lee during that, uh, during that battle. Uh, John Thatch, uh, he was an aviator, a naval aviator in World War II, involved in the Battle of Midway, uh, became an admiral in the Navy. He developed what's known as the Thatch Weave, which is a combat formation that uh, could counter enemy fighters that had superior performance. And uh, he also developed the Big Blue Blanket, which was a type of aerial defense that, uh, that could uh, defend against kamikaze attacks. His tactics have been responsible for a lot of, of uh, aerial victories, and he left his mark on military tacticians everywhere. Joseph Foss, they called him Joe. Um, Joe was one of the leading fighter aces in the Marine Corps during World War II, and uh, he was recognized for his heroism at uh, the Battle of Guadalcanal. That's where my dad served and fought, and uh, he was awarded the Medal of Honor because of his actions there. Ira Hayes. Uh, you may not know Ira Hayes, but he was also known as Chief Falling Cloud to his Pima Native Indian tribe, which is, um, in our translation, I guess would be Little Johnny Raincloud. Um, see, I thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> golly, I wish you did too. Um, Anyway, he was, he was a part of the, uh, the crew that raised the flag on, uh, on Iwo Jima during World War II. And he also participated in that battle, in that campaign. That image is probably the most well-known image uh, in all of World War II. And then there's Michael Patrick Murphy. He was a lieutenant in the Navy. He was a Navy SEAL. He was the first person to be awarded the Medal of Honor for his service in Afghanistan. In fact, he was the first Navy um, sailor that uh, received the Medal of Honor since the Vietnam War. He also received a Purple Heart and a Silver Star. 
Murph, as his friends called him, was always known as a protector. When he was in eighth grade, he protected a special needs kid from a, a band of, of teenagers that were bullying him. And he probably, as a Navy SEAL, did it with uh, uh, emphasis. He chased away attackers uh, who were, who were <laughs> going after a homeless guy that was just out collecting cans, and he chased them away too, and then he helped the, the homeless guy pick up his cans. Murph was killed in action on June 28, 2005, after his SEAL team was compromised and surrounded uh, and outnumbered and outgunned by a Taliban force near Azbatabad, uh, Afghanistan, and after a valiant battle, he died in action. These are heroes you may not have heard of, but their bravery and their devotion uh, to our country is second to none. And the reason I bring this up is because these people and so many others that we don't even know about did what they did because of their devotion to this country, their devotion to freedom, their devotion to all that we hold dear. And when faced with the choice of self-preservation or self-sacrifice, they responded with valor and honor to keep us safe and free. These are people who loved country more than self and loved freedom more than life. And that takes commitment. That takes devotion. That takes being wholly devoted to the cause that you're fighting for, being willing to die for. And you're probably thinking, Mac, it's probably the greatest history lesson that I've ever heard, but what in the world does this have to do with the Bible? What in the world does this have to do with 1 Kings 11? Well, we've been talking the last few weeks about Solomon, the kind of man he was, the kind of leader he was, the kind of builder he was. Solomon had everything going for him. He built the temple that his father David wanted to build but couldn't because he was a man of war. God wanted a man of peace to build the temple, and so he allowed Solomon to build the temple, and it was magnificent. Estimates of if we built the temple now the way Solomon built it, uh, the cost would be uh, up to $216 billion with a B. It was an incredible building. And then uh, Solomon built the, the, the royal palace, which was five times bigger than the temple. And I told you about the, temp, the cedars of Lebanon room, which was 11,000 square feet, and it was wallpapered with gold shields worth almost $30 million. Solomon was the richest man of his day. He controlled all the trade between Asia Minor and Egypt, everything that went, and that was the trade route. Everything went through Jerusalem. So he taxed it at 10% of whatever it was worth and, and became incredibly wealthy. He brought peace through strength to Israel. Um, he, lived, uh, he, he, he lived in peace during his reign because of, uh, of his wisdom and because of his leadership. Solomon is, is considered by many to be the wisest, the, the smartest, the richest man that ever lived. And he could have been, hands down, no argument, the greatest example, the greatest role model, the greatest man that ever lived. But Solomon had a weak spot. Solomon had a blind spot. Solomon had a besetting sin, a presumptuous sin. And 1 Kings 11 tells us what that is. Look at uh, 1 Kings 11, look at verse 4, down in the middle of the verse, it says this, his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. Oh, he was devoted, 
He was devoted enough to build the temple. He was devoted enough to build Israel's defenses. He was devoted enough to share the wisdom of God with all the nations around him. He was devoted enough to worship God in the temple that he built with his, uh, his fellow countrymen. Uh, he was devoted enough to lead Israel in the ways of God, but he wasn't wholly devoted to the Lord his God. See, Solomon had a problem. Solomon liked the girls. It's just the bottom line. Look at verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Don't you love it when the Bible doesn't exaggerate stuff? The Bible says that Jesus didn't eat for 40 days, 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry, you think? We would have said, oh, he was starving, he was famished, he was, you know, the Bible just says, yeah, he was hungry. Here the Bible says, Solomon loved many foreign women, a lot of them. And then it lists them. The daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Sidonian women, Hittite women. And you say, why is this a problem? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, God commanded men to have one wife. Genesis 2, 24 says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And the word wife is singular. He didn't say wives. And this is repeated in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Ephesians 5. And everywhere it is repeated, it is repeated wife, singular. Nowhere does the Bible teach that it's okay to have multiple wives. Paul tells Timothy the requirements for an elder, the requirements for a deacon are to be the husband of one wife, which literally means to be a one woman man. It's talking about character more than it's talking about marital status. It doesn't mean that a man who's been divorced or a man who is widowed can't serve as a deacon or an elder. It just means that his character is impeccable. It is exemplary to the point where he is a one woman man. If a man is single, he's, a, he's devoted to the woman that God will bring him in the future. And this really makes it easy to spot false religions. When religions tell you that you can have multiple wives, or when religions tell you that if you martyr yourself, you'll have 72 virgins waiting for you, that's a sign of a false religion. You say, Mac, how do you know that? It's real simple. How many religions do you know of where women can have multiple husbands? Ever think of that? Why aren't there any of those? I don't know of any. There may be some out there, but I don't know of them. What this is saying is, God didn't bring this up. Man invented this. This is a man thing. Some man dreamed this up, not God. Fact is, I don't know of a lot of women that want multiple husbands. I don't know a lot of women that want the husband they got, you know? Anyway, this is reason number one. God's plan is one man, one woman, until death do us part. The second reason this is a problem is because God said, stay away from foreign women. Look at verse 2. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. God said, you stay away from them, and you make sure they stay away from you. And I'm sure the Israelite men asked the question, why? And God here says, because I said so. You want to know where dads get that? We got it from God. Why was God so adamant about this? Well, 
It was for their own good. Look at the end of verse 2. For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. God knew what was going to happen if the Israelites went after foreign women. And so he warned them, he commanded them, don't do this. But Solomon wouldn't listen. And the end of verse 2 says, Solomon held fast to these women in love. Now, who are these women that Solomon loved but wasn't supposed to? Who are these women? Look back at verse 1, and we'll just go through this. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. He loved them all. Um, Who are these people? Well, obviously, the daughter of Pharaoh would be Egyptian. God said, do not marry Egyptian women. Uh, There was also Moabite women. These are the descendants of Lot who lived east of the Dead Sea. They were not friendly to Israel. Ammonites, they were also descendants of Lot who lived east of the Jordan River, and they were enemies of Israel. Sidonians lived in the area of Tyre and Sidon. That's where the Sidonian, that's where it comes from. They lived on the Mediterranean Sea, north, uh, northwest of Jerusalem. Hittites were the people that lived in Asia Minor, but they also lived in modern-day Syria, and we know what's going on in Syria today. That's been going on since the time of Solomon, and he said, stay away from them. They were enemies of Israel. You say, well, what's so bad about these women? He explains it, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. But Solomon just didn't just disobey God once. You know, he just didn't fall in love with a foreign woman and okay, well, she have already married her, so, you know, it wasn't just a one-time thing. Solomon flaunted it. Solomon put it in God's face. Solomon was trying to stick it to God. Look at verse 3. He had 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. Solomon just didn't fall into this one sin. It was a lifestyle. It was a way of life. He was the king. He was above the law. He didn't have to listen to what God said. And if you look in the middle of verse 3, it says, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And you know, Solomon probably felt like he was living in the shadow of his father the whole time. That happens a lot. Many of us feel like we can't measure up to our dads. I know my kids are that way. (laughs) Okay, you got that one. That's good. (laughs) I remember my dad. My dad, I used to play baseball right out there on that field. My dad could hit a baseball farther than anyone I've ever known. On my very best days, I I couldn't come close to him. And, and, you know, that's kind of the way it is. And there are exceptions to that rule. I think about Archie Manning. He was a great quarterback. He played for the Saints, who were t- just a horrible team. But he was a great quarterback. Well, he had two sons, Peyton and, and uh, Eli, and they both became Super Bowl champions and Super Bowl MVPs. That's the exception to the rule. I think about George H.W. Bush, who was a one-term president. His son, George W. Bush, became a two-term president. That's the exception to the rule. And so the Bible really here is putting Solomon in his place by saying, hey, you know what? You're no David. Don't get the big head. 
And what Solomon did opened the door to graven images. Look at verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. So what this is saying is Solomon here is completely engulfed in idol worship. Ashtoreth was the goddess of love and fertility, and all kinds of unspeakable sexual things happened in the name of worshiping this false god. In fact, the Hebrew word actually means shame. Milcom is another word for Moloch, and Moloch was the, the national god of the Ammonites. It means the one who rules, and the worship of Moloch involves sacrificing children in the fire. They sacrificed their children by burning them to death. So Solomon married an Ammonite princess, maybe a lot of them, and built an altar to Molech in Jerusalem for the Israelites to worship. The same altar that later in 2 Kings, good King Josiah, remember him? He tore down those uh, altars that that Solomon had built. That's why it says here in 1 Kings, Solomon did what was evil, verse 6, in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for the Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Chemosh was the god of the Moabites and the worship of Chemosh also involved sacrificing children in the fire. And this is what Solomon participated in. Look at verse 8. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon not only went along with their idol worship, he built altars in Jerusalem and encouraged his fellow countrymen to do the same, to worship. And by doing this, Solomon exposed and admitted his guilt. Verse 9, now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord and the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Solomon had no excuse. I mean, if you look at it, Solomon not only knew the scriptures, he not only knew the law, he not only knew the statutes of God, but God appeared to him twice. God met with him twice. And so if anyone knew what God wanted, what God commanded, it was Solomon. It says God met with him twice. And in verse uh, verse 10, it says, commanded him concerning these things, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. You see, there's a point in all of our lives where God says, that's it, you've crossed the line. And we see that occasionally in the Bible. Not often because God deals with us in grace, but we see that occasionally in the Bible. I think of Uzzah, the Kohathite. You know, back in the day when they didn't have the NFL or Disneyland, what they would do is they would go out and fight each other. They would, you know, it was, in fact, it says it was, it was the season where, it was war season, the season where, they would, where kings went to war. 
And that's just what they did. They didn't have anything else to do. So they said, hey, let's go get something to eat and go fight somebody. And, and that's what they did. And the, the Israelites fighting with the Philistines, you can read about it in, in 1 Samuel 5. They're fighting with the Philistines. The battle's not going well. They say, hey, we need to go get God. Let's go get God and put him in our sight. So they went back to Jerusalem. They got the Ark of the Covenant. They brought it down to the battle. The, the whole Israeli camp breaks into a cheer. The Philistines say, wow, something's going on over there. We got to be on our game because they've got something going on. They go into battle. The Israelites think they're going to win hands down. They get it handed to them, and the Philistines take the ark. God said, you know, guys, you can't keep that. And so he sent them tumors and rats and mice and all kinds of stuff. And they finally said, we've got to give this thing back. Uzzah was on the team that went to take the ark back. Uzzah was a Kohathite. He knew how to carry the ark. You put poles through the rings, and you carried it so that you never touched the ark. God commanded you never touch the ark. Instead of doing that, they put it on a wagon, and they started hauling it back to Jerusalem. The wagon hit a pothole. The thing started to tip over. Uzzah reached out and grabbed it so it wouldn't fall off the wagon, and boom, he fell dead. Sometimes God drops the hammer on the guilty. I think about Ananias and Sapphira. You know, they went to church, they sold a piece of land, they came into church, and they said, we, we sold this piece of land, we're giving all the money to the church. Peter said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. You didn't give, you held some back. Boom, they dropped dead. How would you like to have an offering like that? That would get your attention. But most of the time, God deals with us in grace. And that's what he did with Solomon. Look at verse 12. It says, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away. I will not tear away the kingdom, but I will give the whole kingdom. I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Solomon gets to finish his term as king, but he does it knowing full well that his dad left him the kingdom in good health. He's leaving his son a mess. He's completely messed it up. And God could have dropped the hammer on Solomon, said, that's it, boom. But he dealt with Solomon in grace. And that's how God deals with us most of the time. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, that's the greatest history lesson I've ever heard, and I know more about Solomon than I ever wanted to know. Oh, what in the world does this have to do with me on this beautiful spring day in Psalms? Well, you know, we can learn a lot about our lives by looking at the life of Solomon. And all of this happened to Solomon because he was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. He was pretty devoted, but not wholly devoted. And a lot of times in our lives, we're not wholly devoted. We're pretty devoted. We're devoted enough to do some pretty good things, but we're not wholly devoted. What does it mean to be wholly devoted? Well, I don't know if you remember the great golfer Lee Trevino. Someone said, man, you are so lucky to be able to hit the ball with that kind of a touch. And he said, touch is something you create by hitting a million golf balls. And they said that he would hit up to 10,000 golf balls a day while he was um, in, the, in the pro golfing tour. That's being wholly devoted. I remember when I was growing up, the Dodgers had a great team. Steve Garvey was the first baseman. Some of you remember Steve Garvey. 
before he went to bed every night, he would go out in the garage and he would swing a baseball bat 500 times before he went to bed. That's why his arms looked like Popeyes. He was, that's all he did. I mean, everything that happened, you know, Steve, can you pass the biscuits? Sure, here you go. I mean, it was everything he did. Wholly devoted. Solomon wasn't wholly devoted. He was pretty devoted. Solomon had a weak spot, a blind spot, a besetting sin, a presumptuous sin. He had a sin that he thought God would never deal with. He had a sin that he thought he could get away with. And it ruled his life and it ruined his life. Instead of Solomon finishing strong and being hands down, no argument, the greatest role model, the greatest example, the greatest man that ever lived, Solomon ended his term as king in disgrace and failure because he had a presumptuous sin that he refused to deal with. Contrast that with his father David, who said in Psalm 19, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. You know, the great theologian John Owen said, the seed of every sin is in the heart of every man. And what that means is we all have besetting sins. We all have presumptuous sins. What's the besetting sin in your life? What's the presumptuous sin in your life? How are you going to deal with it? If you're pretty devoted to the Lord your God, you will do what Solomon did, and you will presume that God will let it go. God won't deal with it. But if you're wholly devoted to the Lord your God, you'll deal with it like David did. And you will pray every day, Lord, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Don't let them rule over me. The one way you choose to deal with it will determine whether you're pretty devoted or wholly devoted. Let's pray together. Father, today as we look at the life of Solomon, we pray that we would learn from Solomon's mistake here and we would be fully devoted to you in everything we do, whether it's at home with our wife and kids, whether it's at work, whether it's driving, whether it's mowing the grass, we would do everything for your glory and for your honor that we would be fully devoted, wholly devoted to you. Make us those people, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.